And welcome back. I'm Ron Olesko, and uh, today I have a very special guest. Uh, many of you, especially if you've been in the New York City area, probably have fond memories of the old Bottom Line, an incredible club that uh, was operating for, for decades in Greenwich Village. And next year would have been its 50th anniversary. It, well, it is the 50th Fe anniversary. February 12th, 1974. Oh, it, it's so many great memories. Well, well, with me today is Alan Pepper, one of the gentlemen who co-founded The Bottom Line. Alan, it's, it's so good to sit with you in today. Thank you. you and, and first of all, let me start off by saying thank you for the memories, because oh. uh, I spent so many times in the, at the bottom line. I can remember so many memorable concerts, Jan and Dean, right. uh, Squeeze, Chris Christopherson, and of course, all the great folk acts that you booked. Yeah. The very first show I saw at the bottom line was Loudon Wainwright III. And uh, it's it's uh, it's memories that stick with me. I'm I'm collecting memories. If anybody has <laughs> bottom line memories, oh, there's yeah. somebody out let there. Me, let me know. <laughs> well, what's, well, the reason we're sitting down to talk today is because you are continuing to issue albums from some of the performances of the Bottom Line. I know uh, even while the club is still around, you issued a few, and uh, a few years ago you started re-releasing right. them, and now you've got a brand new one, which I believe is the the first of several to come. Yeah, um, we uh, actually taped over a long period of time probably about a thousand performances. Wow. Now, they, they weren't a thousand different acts. Um, many cases we taped early shows and late shows. Um, and so now, obviously, we have a vault of stuff, and we're trying to put out um, some of that. We've been successful. We've been doing it over the years. It, there's a, a long procedure that you have to go through because just because you have it, mm. you don't legally have the rights to put it out. Right. So everything that gets put out has to be cleared by the artist, the record company that they were with at the time. Then you have to make deals for, with the publishers mm. so that everybody gets, everybody gets paid. Um, there's a lot of wonderful things that have been recorded that at this moment won't see the light of day because we can't get the permissions. Sure. Right. So it's a long, tedious process. We put out, I think there were 11 or 12 titles, and now um, we've just uh, moved to another, uh, to another uh, distributor and another company that um, the new things are gonna be put out. We're now with Omnivore, Omnivore uh, Recordings. People can go and look it up online. Mm -hmm. And, um, they're a terrific company, and this Yorma, um, this Yorma uh, CD, which was an acoustic show he did at the club, an acoustic blues show, uh, is the first thing that is being released with them. There's a couple of other things that are um, slated to come out. We're just waiting for the final okay from the artists because mm -hmm. the artists have to okay too you just can't put this stuff out sure what a lot of people don't realize is that there's a real uh, if you want to do it the right way which obviously we want to do it you have to go through a real procedure mm -hmm. uh, to get it done so now not only is the yorma but in particular interest to your listeners, hopefully there's a steel ice span oh yeah a live steel ice span concert that we're just waiting to get the band to sign off on. Oh, let's hope that comes out soon. Well, I'm excited about Yorma. Uh, this was a, a performance for August 8th, 2003. I'm sure some of our listeners 
may have actually been at that mm -hmm. show. Uh, and this is a two CD set, and there's some, some classic Yorma songs on here. Uh, why don't we take a moment and, and let's take a listen to one of them right now. In fact, we'll start off with the one that begins the CD, the f disc number one. Uh, here's Yorma Kalkinen live at the bottom line, August 8th, 2003 with Blue Railroad Train.
It's many miles from where I am to the only one for It's lonely here Waiting for the men up here I hope that in Janeer is kind enough to let me be again live at the bottom line back in August of 2003. It's a brand new two CD set issued on Omnivore Recordings as part of the new bottom line collection. Or uh, I should say the new bottom line collection. It's an no, extension of the bottom line collection. We, um, uh, you've been kind enough over the years to play some of the other stuff that has been recorded at the bottom line. One of my favorites uh, was a Harry Chapin yeah. 3D set. And what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, that's seemingly th that record or that CD when you're listening to it sounds like it's one performance. It was actually six separate shows huh. that were edited seamlessly. The best takes of six shows that were edited seamlessly by Hank Medgers, who um, is deceased at this point. But he was a very good friend of mine, and he was one of the principals uh, when we started Bottom Line Records. And he was a wonderful, he was a wonderful producer. And he took six shows, hmm. and it sounds like one continuous yeah. show. And that's always been a, that's always been a great favor of mine. And you've been kind enough over the years to play several different tracks. So yeah. um, thank you. My pleasure. And thank you from all those Harry Chapin fans <laughs> out there too. Well, I was at one of those shows mm -hmm. uh, that, that weekend. I, I remember what, the 2000th performance, that sold out in seconds, I think. Right. But I think I was there the, the night after that. And uh, it, it was just one of those memorable events to see Harry that close up. And, um, and I have a great, uh, I can just diverge and share with you and your listeners a wonderful Stanley Sandowski, Harry Chapin, Alan Pepper story. If sure. you'd like to, if you'd like to hear, um, Stanley loved Harry Chapin. 
And, and Stanley, for our listeners, was the co-founder with you. With That's the right. He was the co-founder. He was my partner at the bottom line. He just loved Harry Chapin. He could listen to Harry Chapin. He knew every single song. So, but we had a very strict way of doing business, of, of, um, of the way we wanted to negotiate our deals. And um, we would never give away more than 50% of the door. You know, sometimes you worked a deal where there was a guarantee plus a percentage. Of, uh, and one day, I got a phone call from two agents who were handling. In fact, this is the story of that, of that show that came out as a record. And one of the guys said to me, I, I, I want to talk to you, Harry Chapin, would like to play his 2,000th show at the bottom line. Uh, he's done 2,000 shows. He started The Village. Uh, he did all the showcases at The Village Gate. But he wants to do his 2,000th concert at the bottom line. I said, oh, that's great. And I'm thinking of Stanley, who's at the desk right next to me. Um, and they said, but, and money is not the issue. Um, you know, uh, we'll take whatever guarantee, but he wants 80% of the door. <laughs> and I wow. knew we weren't going to give up 80% yeah. of the But um, I, I felt, I, I knew Stanley loved Harry Chapin so much that I felt I had an obligation to at least share this with him without turning it down, sign and say. So I look at him and I say, now he's sitting at the desk right next to me. I said, I have good news and I have bad news. <laughs> and he said, what's, what's that? And I said, it's Harry Chapin's 2000th thing. And, oh, and, and they say to me, if you don't take this deal, the guys say to me, um, uh, oh no, I think the deal was they wanted uh, a certain guarantee versus 80% of the door, whichever was greater. And we knew it was going to sell out, so 80% of the door was going to be greater than the guarantee they wanted. Sure. So I said to Stanley, I got good news and bad news. So he said, what is it? I said, Harry Chapin wants to play his 2000th concert at the bottom. And his face lights up like a Christmas tree. Yeah. Like this, and, <laughs> and, and I said, well, the bad news is they want a modest guarantee versus 80% of the door, whichever is greater. And I see, all of a sudden, this smile disappeared off his face. And he thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And he looked at me and he said, pass. We're not going to do it. So he said to the guys, hold, hold on for a minute. I need to talk to Stanley. So he said, look. I said, you love Harry Chapin. And I said, I know we have these rules. I said, but they're going to do it someplace else because they've already got an offer to do it someplace else. They just wanted to give us the first offer because Chapin wanted it. And I said, and we can bend the rule for a minute because if we pass on it and you know he's going to be doing it someplace else, you're going to be so irritated that <laughs> that could be. Because the bottom line was like for all the people who were ever there, if you think about it, it was like performing in your living room. Yeah. You know, for the, and I said, you'll have your table, you'll be able to see every one of his shows. Think of how it'll make you feel. And I said, I can live with it. And he said, he says, no, gotta pass, gotta pass. Yeah. He wouldn't break his. So I got back on the phone, I said, sorry guys, 
it's a pass. And they and all of a sudden on the other end of the phone, I hear them laughing hysterically. <laughs> they had made a bet that they knew Stanley loved Chapin so much that they felt that Stanley would break some, one of the rules that we set in place in terms of, the, and I, all of a sudden I hear one guy screaming in my ear to the other guy, I knew it, I knew it, I won. I, and I couldn't make sense, so I said, what are you guys talking about? And they were laughing hysterically and they said, they had no intentions of taking the date somewhere else. Right. We were always gonna get the date because that's where Chapin wanted to be. Yeah. And so Snedowski wound up sitting at his table watching every show with the biggest smile on his yeah. face and he had the satisfaction of sticking to his guns <laughs> and um, all the listeners uh, who have gained satisfaction and loved that record got the, got the pleasure of that engagement. Uh -huh. so. coast in the city by the bay and there's a heavy precipitation warning. It was raining hard in Frisco. I needed one more fare to make my night. A lady up ahead waved to flag me down. She got in at the line. Oh, where you going to, my lady blue? It's a shame you ruined your gown in the rain. She just looked out the window. She said, 16 Parkside Lane. Something about it was familiar. I could swear I've seen her face before But she said, I'm sure you're mistaken And she didn't say anything more It took a while, but she looked in the mirror Then she glanced at the license for my name A smile seemed to come to her slowly It was a sad smile, just the same and she said, how are you, Harry? I said, how are you, Sue? Through the too many miles and the two little smiles, I still remember you. It was somewhere in a fairy tale I used to take her home in my car We learned about love in the back of a Dodge The lesson hadn't come too far You see, she was gonna be an actress And I was gonna learn to fly She took off to find the footlights I took off the fanscape 
inside me to drive a princess blind There's a wild man wizard, he's hiding in me was gone so I turned my cab into the driveway past the gate and the fine trim laws and she said we must get together but I knew it'd never be arranged and she had me twenty dollars for a two-fifty fare she said Such a long, long time ago Sing it with me now You see, she was gonna be an actress And I was gonna learn to fly She took off to find the footlights I took off for the sky And here she's acting happy And here she's acting happy Inside her handsome home And me, I'm flying in my taxi Taking tips Yeah, I go flying So high When I'm stoned That's a wonderful engagement. That's actually six shows um, knitted into one. It, into was, one it show. was a beautiful moment, and uh, 
you, know, you, you hit on something there. It was like performing in a living room. And mm. I, I saw Harry Chapin a number of times before that. And I saw Yorba a number of times. But to see him in the, all these artists in such a, a warm spot like the bottom line, you really felt like you were in a living room. And you really felt like you were with family. And that's something that you and Stanley developed when you designed the bottom line. Right. What, what, the club was what, a warehouse or something before that? No, the, the club had a very storied, the club had a very storied history. It was original, from what I've been able to say, it was originally the New York City home of the second city in New York. In other words, when the second city from Chicago came to New York City to do a Broadway show, they wanted a home in New York when the Broadway show closed. So they, um, they found this space. This was a, an, an, an industrial space. They found this space, and they called it Square East, I think. Mm -hmm. And so that particular space housed a number of wonderful performers who were kind of just um, uh, honing, you know, honing their own skills. Uh, Barbara Harris, Paul Dooley, I think Robert Klein, David Steinberg, there are a whole lot of pe young people starting out. And then from there, it went to a place which was a tourist place called the Red Garter, which was, um, uh, it was set up that there was uh, sawdust on the floor and they used to sell uh, peanuts and beer and would so and people would open the peanuts, throw the shells on the <laughs> floor, and they do a lot of sing-along to old, uh, old Americana stuff and Tin Pan Alley stuff and stuff that was written in the beginning of the 20th century and people would clap along. And, um, and then when that place closed, I think it was around for seven years, we took over the space. And, and it became the bottom line. And you were there for what, 30 years? 30 what? years. Yeah. 30 years. Uh, it's a shame because obviously uh, when you closed, the rents were going up. And I know your landlord had other ideas for the building. Yeah, absolutely. The times had changed. It was after 9-11. And, uh, and that's another memorable moment, 9-11, when you reopened up. Well, what happened was the interesting thing, right after 9-11, I could not. Emotionally, I could not listen to music. Mm -hmm. I just and you think that was so bizarre because music means so much to me, and it has brought me so much happiness. And I could not listen to music. And Eileen, my wife, always had the radio on in the kitchen, you know, because she'd cook. And it was uh, WFTU. She had WFTU on. Mm -hmm. And it was a Saturday morning. She was listening to Jerry, Jerry Tracy. Tracy. Yeah. So she was listening to Jerry Tracy, and I came in. I had not, and I sat down at the table, and it was a Jerry show. Whatever he was playing was the first law. Was the first music huh. I had I had heard, and from that, and I, I was bothered by the fact that people were too afraid to come into New York from uh, from outside. And they were really afraid to uh, come out at night, and particularly come from the, to the village. And we were not that far from Ground Zero. Yeah. In fact, although we were a couple of miles, you could um, 
if you stood in front of the bottom line, you could smell the smoke and the plastic mm. burning in it, you know. And that was there for months. And I, I put together a free concert called uh, A Gift of Music, I think it was called Gift of Music Gathering of Friends, where I got 40 acts, um, not, not 40, I got, I got a lot of acts, I don't remember how much, but I, I, I got um, a lot of people, I got everybody from Jackie DeShannon to the Fab Faux, um, uh, to Christine Lavin and Julie Gold, I just, um, uh, to the Bacon Brothers, just a cross section of the different music that we presented. And I, I uh, there were several radio stations that we hooked up with, we got a lot of those personnels to actually host it. Because I wanted it to be, I wanted to show all of us coming together, and it was free admission, and the point was I just wanted people, oh, Phoebe Snow did a wonderful version of God Bless America, mm. just, and I wanted everybody to um, to feel, uh, to feel safe. Sure. And come out and uh, experience community with their, um, with their fellow people, and and I may have ultimately come to the same conclusion, but I might not have done it as quickly if Eileen didn't have the radio on, and <laughs> if she wasn't listening to Jerry Tracy on oh, FDU. That's great. I'm glad, glad Jerry. Because FDU was in our home all the time. Oh, right. <laughs> so it just turned out to be <laughs> that day. If it was a Sunday, it would have been you. If you know, or you know. Anyway. Well, so. I I know you and Eileen. Eileen writes me every week with I some know. of these wonderful requests, and mm -hmm. uh, it's it's great the, the knowledge of music the two of you have. And well, music is such a wonderful thing to bring people together. Yeah. You know, there's an old story um, that during World War II, that a lot of Americans would be over fighting, and they'd be um, they'd be interacting with other people who. Um, couldn't speak the language, Italian soldiers, French soldiers, you know. Um, and one thing people would say, uh, the, the um, Europeans would say to the Americans, Charlie Parker, Charlie Parker, uh -huh. the great jazz saxophonist. The music has a way of just connecting people in a way that uh, other things don't necessarily do. And, and you <coughs> and Stanley certainly connected us with so many wonderful performances over the years. And uh, it's a different world we live in now. But thankfully, because of these these new recordings that you're releasing, um, uh, we, we get to relive them. And uh, for some people, I know it's probably experiencing it for the first time. Uh, Yorma, Yorma Kalkinen, the very first one that you've released in this new set. What, was there a reason why Yorma was chosen first? Yeah, I mean, he, 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 okay, now your radio audience will understand some of the realities <laughs> of what we're up here. First of all, it was a great recording. Yeah. Uh, and it was something special because he was doing this acoustic blues thing. So that made it special, that made it stand up. Also, one of the principles of Omnivore Records that we're with had a relationship with, um, with Yorma. We had approached Yorma a couple of times and they weren't ready. Uh, they were not ready to give an okay on it. They had other commitments and all. And so much of this business gets done on personal relationships. And um, Cheryl, po Cheryl Powalski, who's one of the principals of Omnivore, had a relationship um, with Yorma, and um, and so they they made it happen. Again, it was an it was it's a wonderful recording. It sounds great. My guys did a great job 
that night. Um, so Yorma and um, would wanted it to come out because it sounds so good, and it's something that he didn't do a lot. Um, and so, so much of what ultimately comes together is happenstance. Yeah. You know. Well, it sounds great, and uh, I want to play another cut now. Yorma um, uh, has given us so many great performances over the years. I've always loved the way he does this song, Death Don't Have No Mercy. Uh, so let's go back in time. We're at the bottom line together, August 8th, 2003, now available on uh, Omnivore rec Recordings. And we'll give you a little sneak peek of it right now. Here's Yorma. How about a Death Don't Have No Mercy there? Yeah. You know, one of the things I like about introducing that great song of the Reverend's Death Don't Have No Mercy is it just makes so many people so happy, you know? Thank you. 
Thank you. That was Yorma Kalkinen, recorded at the bottom line August 8th, 2003, and Death Don't Have No Mercy. And that's a cut from a new two CD set on Omnivore Recordings. Uh, the recordings done at the bottom line, and I'm, I'm sitting here today with Alan Pepper, uh, reminiscing about the, the, the wonderful club and these great shows. Uh, I want to say something about the packaging. Yeah. Uh, uh, Greg Bendian, who is actually um, takes the uh, the tapes that we have and works very hard with a wonderful group of people, and not only produces or reproduces um, uh, the uh, the music, so it's um, it will sound great on on CD. But he does a wonderful job on the liner notes. Spends a lot of time. He's a very smart guy, very bright guy. And he's also a musician. He was a, he and his band used to appear at the bottom line all the time called the Mahavishnu Project. Oh, yes. Where they yes. approached the music of John McLaughlin and Mahavishnu uh, almost like a songbook, like the Great American Songbook. So it wasn't a tribute band um, or a cover band as much as it was um, their take on a, a body of music that they really respected. And he's very knowledgeable and um, um, uh, obviously knows me. He's a player, so he comes to the music in a, in a different way. But he's got a great respect for all kinds of music, which makes him the ideal producer for um, all, of the, all of the stuff. And he spends a lot of time on the liner notes. So for uh, any of your listeners who want to get the, um, the CD on Omnivore Records, um, it um, it's not only because you're going to get a great recording, but the liner notes are well worth the price of admission. Mm -hmm. And especially in these days when everything seems to be going digital, to have right. a package like this, and the artwork is great too. It's a nice uh, kind of a it's, a it's a photo of Yora, but it's sort of stylized, mm -hmm. uh, posterized, and it just really brings back memories. Uh, you, you said before that you've got thousands of recordings. Uh, About a thousand, I think, yeah. Uh, was the intention originally to record for potential? It, 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 they happen in a lot of different ways. Some of them were radio broadcasts. Some of them were um, that something was special was happening. We sensed it. So the guy at the soundboard just... Um, you know, uh, threw on a, you know, threw on a tape. There's nothing done surreptitiously, mm -hmm. you know, in, in in something. We weren't looking at, we weren't looking to hide it. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of them we told the artists out front. We uh, we did. If people who are familiar with the club, um, there were certain series that we had. Like for argument's sake, we did this whole series required listening. Mm -hmm. We would record all those shows in actual or in their own words, which was that long the songwriter show. We would record them because we thought historically they were going to be very valuable. Um, you know, you'd find out stuff from songwriters that um, uh, that you might not ever gain access to unless um, you were in this moment of time with them. And when people are sitting on a stage, or maybe they've had a drink and they're sitting out there with other songwriters and they're just swapping stories. It's very different than when you're doing, when somebody's coming in to interview them. So they're with their peers and they're swapping stories. And one of those, one of the things that's standing out in my mind is Tom T. Hall, one night, 
um, Tom T. Hall tells the story that I think it was Billy J. Walker in a bar in Nashville says to Tom, do you want to buy this guitar? And Tom picks it up and he shakes the guitar, he listens to it, he <laughs> shakes it by his ear and he says, you sure you want to sell this to me because it's got some hits in it? And Billy J. says, yeah, I'm one. I just want to get rid of the guitar. And he sells him the guitar. And the first song that Tom wrote on that was uh, Harper Valley PTA. <laughs> wow. Now, you wouldn't get that kind of stuff in an ordinary interview, I wouldn't think. Sonny Curtis, who wrote I Fought the Law and the Law One, and he also wrote the theme song for the Mallory Tyler Moore show, so it's the yin and the yang, you know. Came from Lubbock, and he's in a grocery store one day and he gets into the a conversation and the guy behind the counter says, what do you do for a living? And uh, Sonny says, I'm a songwriter. And the guy says, you're a songwriter? He said, yeah. He said, can you write out the words to me to mule train on this piece of paper? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I give you these two stories because they're funny and they're interesting. But I had the sense that there was a history happening and I wanted to capture it. So we recorded every one of those shows early in late show and I ultimately made copies that I sent to the musicians. Uh, when Doc Palmas, the great songwriter, who had all these, it's uh, Save the Last Dance for Me, Teenager in Love, uh, Lonely Avenue, he used to come to the club all the time, especially to, to these shows. And he was in the hospital, he had cancer, and he was in the hospital. I used to make him copies of these and send it to him in the hospital. Just so, mm -hmm. just so we know. So it's, that's my long way of saying there are lots of different reasons why we recorded some of these shows. So, and um, we did these shows, um, if you remember, we did a whole series of shows around Darlene Love mm -hmm. called Portrait of a Singer. It was like almost, our, it was an off-Broadway show. And I recorded every one of the shows. I think the other day I looked through the thing, I had 96 shows uh -huh. just of Darlene doing it. So, um, so now we're going back and we're trying to get the rights and we're seeing if the artists will go along with it. And we want to share this with them. You know, it's all part of the legacy of the bottom line. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's a, a, a way of still keeping the club alive still preserving the legacy and I you and I were talking about I'm in the middle of writing a book right now yes I was going to talk to you about which that. is part memoir part oral history and um, so um, we do just want to keep the club for me in my life was super special and uh, I want to preserve it and, and also to introduce new audiences younger people who weren't even alive when no. the bottom line was around to know what that feeling was about. Oh, you want to know something about that? You want to know, want to feel yeah. old? Uh, we did a show with Dar Williams, and I'm walking down the middle aisle to leave to go to dinner, and these two younger people who've obviously never been to the club before, but are coming to see Dar. They have found the place. It's a new generation has found this place because of Dar Williams. And as I'm passing them, I hear her say to him, this girl says, I feel so weird coming here. This is where my folks come to listen to music. <laughs> so yes, we want to keep it alive, even though you might feel weird. Because yeah. your folks came to this place and saw some great shows or you've heard about it. 
uh, yes, <coughs> we want to keep it alive. Well, I, I can't wait till you have the book finished and out there. Uh, as you said, it's going to be part memoir, part uh, mm. reminiscences about the bottom line. Mm. But you know, I, I think it's good too because it's so much of a struggle for clubs. Um, I know there's other clubs in the village that are around today yeah. that are closing their doors and. Uh, I think there's a lesson to be learned in, in what, what the bottom line stood for. Because as I said before, and as you said, it was like being in a living room. And right. obviously you and Stanley had more than just a feeling of, okay, I'm going to be booking tonight. Here's how much money we're going to make. You were involved. It was in, never about money no, for us. It, you were involved. Well, it was never about money for me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it may have been about money for Stanley. But it was never about money for uh, for either one of us. But, but you made both the artist and the audience feel so much a part of what you were doing. And I think that's been lost on a lot of people that are operating today. You know, um, it's so interesting that you said that. So Stanley and I were, I think, 30 years old when we signed the lease and 31 when the club opened. And in the beginning, uh, when I when we went into business and started, I get a lot of satisfaction out of booking acts that um, were going to be the next big thing. You know, we broke so many acts. Mm. Uh, the one, of course, that we're most well known for is Bruce Springsteen. But you know, we did a. Uh, um, we did like a major date for Dolly Parton in New York and, and there was Barry Manilow and Billy Joel. So the, a lot of the satisfaction and the excitement um, for me came from, you know, uh, being able to present those kind of shows in a very formative stage of an artist's career. However, after many years have passed and after I was doing it over and over again, I found a different kind of satisfaction. You always find satisfaction about presenting somebody uh, that not only does business, but there's a, you know, the, you get a buzz going. Um, but I found a different kind of satisfaction from the, um, the feeling of community that I established with a core group of people, a lot of village people, but a core group of people. Uh, people like Loudon Wainwright, David Bromberg, certainly the Roaches, Christine Lavin, definitely, um, and, and um, so many other people that I, Willie Nile, people that I presented on an ongoing basis. So you get to know these people. And I remember coming to work one day, it was a Sunday, and I had just had the night before. And then we did David Johansson, which was either his bust of Poindexter personality or David Joe and the Harry Smiths, one of the, one of the two musical identities. And I'd become friends with David Joe, and it was always exciting. But then I went backstage, because we were doing a show called Laugh Tracks with Christine Labin. And I came back and all these folkies were there, and I was kibitzing with Tom Paxton and uh, Christine and some of the other people. And I remember leaving the dressing room and walking across the club and thinking to myself, how lucky am I mm -hmm. that I can live in all these different musical worlds, that I can, um, I can do a show and have a relationship with David Johansson one day and come in and hang out with uh, Tom Paxton and Christine, people I genuinely you know, liked. And, so as the years went by, the feeling of community and relationships were far more important to me 
um, than uh, you know presenting the next you know the next big rave or the next big uh, exciting exciting thing. And feeling a community replaced that, and that was the important thing for me. Anyway, it, it was um, yeah for us the, this we aspired to do this. This was really really thought out on, on our part in terms of what we uh, what we wanted to do. And that feeling of community certainly rubbed off on the audience too because we all felt it. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, we're talking to Alan Pepper, the co-founder of The Bottom Line, and he's just released a new album, uh, Yorma Kalkinen, Live at the Bottom Line, from August of 2003. And for, um, I'm, I'm going to plug Omnivore for a minute because we've just made this deal with them and one reason that I was so anxious to make this deal with them is because they really, the, the company is run by four people who've been in the music business for years and they love music. They love it like you love it when you turn into this radio station. They, um, they just love it. So I would, um, whether you're gonna buy the Yorma CD or not, I would urge you to just go to their website and look at the various artists that they put out they're all over the board um, and um, you know they just love music the same way the people listening to the show love music so we're very uh, simpatico with being in that family at this point well we're all grateful and we're all grateful that the, these uh, recordings are going to be issued um, and uh, you know what, Let, let's play another cut from it now. This is always, I, I love the way Yorma does this one. It's an old Reverend Gary Davis song, or at least it's most recognized by Reverend Gary. It's uh, I Am the Light of This World. Here's Yorma Kalkinen live at the bottom line, August 8th, 2003. All right, having said that, we'd like to do a Gary Davis spiritual. This is called I Am the Light of This World. Would that be me? Just as long as I'm in this world, I'm the light of this world. Just as long as I'm in this world, I'm the light of this world. Just as long as I'm in, I'm the light of this world. Just as long as I'm in this world, I'm the Light of this world, just as long as I'm in this world, said I am the light of this world.
was Yorma Kalkinen, live at the bottom line, August 8th, 2003, doing I Am the Light of This World. And that is on a new two-CD set of uh, recording from the bottom line, Omnivore Recordings. And it's uh, the next incarnation of the series of recordings that the bottom line is issued. Hopefully we'll be seeing some more in, in the near future. Um, with the 50th anniversary coming up next, next year, Alan, you mentioned the book. Um, uh, is there any other way you're gonna would like to commemorate the the, the, the club? Um, we are working on some other stuff. It's a little too early. <coughs> it's a little too early to uh, sure. talk about because it's like so many other things in this business. You get close and things fall apart. Of course, at the at the last minute. I will say to your listeners, um, if you have a bottom line story you'd like to share of a particular experience that happened to you while you were at the club and you'd um, like to share it with me for possible inclusion in the book and possible po the possibility of an interview as a listener, um, email it to me at alanpepper at aol.com. That's A-L-L-A-N-P-E-P-P-E-R at aol.com. And um, if you do that and um, you know, uh, it fits in with what we're trying to do. We'll contact you and see if we can include it in the book. I'm just looking for experiences and stories 
of, um, of people because beside wanting to tell my story and the story of Stanley myself, uh, I want to know the stories of the musicians who play there and certainly the fans who play there and the people who work there. Mm -hmm. So when um, ultimately this comes out, and hopefully it's supposed to come out uh, in the fall, late fall of next year. And uh, so hopefully um, it'll have not only my story, but uh, the stories of so many people um, uh, whose lives were changed by mm -hmm. that club. I mean, there were people who got married there, uh, who met their um, wives there and husbands there, and took their first dates there, and uh, yeah. um, and even people who, uh, after they gave birth, brought their babies there. Uh -huh. um, so um, I know it meant a lot to a lot of people, and frankly, um, I'm not a, I'm, uh, I find it, um, I'm humbled by it. Yeah. Because I think we made a difference in people's lives. You and that's humbling. Certainly did. I, I have so many memories myself and I can still taste those French fries yeah. and, the, and the pitcher of sangria. That was always our, our accompaniment for any show we went to. Well, Alan, uh, thank you again for, for, first of all, sitting down and chatting with me today and, and for releasing this, this album. Yorma Kalkinen live at the bottom line on Omnivore Recordings. And why don't we play with the song, go out with the song that closes this two CD set, Hesitation Blues. Alan, thank you so much You're for everything. Welcome. Thank you. And now, here's Yorma Kalkinen. Barry and I were playing this, uh, our final gig in Italy was up in the northern part, but they have the efficiency of the Germans to mix well with the spirit of the Italians. And the uh, gig was right next to this 2,000-year-old um, Roman ruin, which was pretty cool. But the coolest thing was, because it was a cultural event, they uh, hired this, uh, this friend. What's your friend's uh, name there? Beppe Gambetta. Famous bluegrass guitar player from Italy, as it would be. But anyway, he transcribed this next song, and it was in the program. And he got every note right, but they got the name of the song wrong. So instead of Hesitation Blues, it came out as Excitation Blues. <laughs> Maybe he was thinking about a Beach Boys song, I'm not sure. We'd like to do the Excitation Blues.
fish in the sea Lord knows you mean that world to me Tell me how long do I have to wait Can I get you now, baby must I Thank you very much. Cindy Cash Dollar, Barry Minnehoff, thank you so much. <laughs>